Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast Podcast. The podcast that this Halloween asks if maybe the most terrifying thing about the dead punching their skeletal fingers through the dirt and rising their rotting corpses from their graves is that they then might renew their Conservative Party membership. This is episode 108, Scream, and I'm Fiernan Booyep. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, I mean, <clears throat> it's episode 118, I'm Tin and Do Yep. Sorry, I've got a coldy thing. <clears throat> and this week, as the budget arrived just days before All Hallows' Eve, Chancellor of the Exchequer and soulless beast that all humour fears for lest he murder it mercilessly as part of a very, very boring speech, Philip Hammond, announced that the well-known horror, the era of austerity, is coming to an end. Though, judging by the rest of his speech, it does sound like he's set it up for multiple sequels and spin-offs with largely the same supporting cast. Yes, it wasn't quite the usual slasher fic that the budget has been, but instead Spreadsheet Phil, so-called because he's so devoid of personality he shares most of his cells with a table, instead just went for funding increases so nothingy that it's more like one of those early 2000s torture films where everything is left to die painfully from previous injuries in the most dragged out manner possible. It's like a really unexciting Saw sequel, i.e. any of them, where this time Jigsaw spends seven years hacking away at one of his victims, only to then spend the next five years occasionally offering to put a not-quite-big-enough plaster on some of the less devastating cuts. This was added to by the psychological pain of Hammond announcing more money for public lose, but backing that with a bevy of poorly told and badly written toilet jokes, none of which included saying that the public would feel any more flush because of this or pointing out just how shit all of it was. Schools are getting a one-off bonus of £400 million, and Hammond said that was for all the little extras they need, which I feel is a very cold way to refer to children. There was also the big announcement of a commemorative Brexit 50p coin. Hooray! And that's probably just so you can look at it to remember why you're having to sharpen the edges of it to form a rudimentary shuriken to hunt pigeons with so you've got some sustenance for after the no deal. 
There's also £420 million towards tackling potholes, but the Asphalt Industry Alliance reckons it will take at least £8 billion to fix all of them. Yes, you can make your own jokes here about there not being even enough money to avoid a rocky road or structural failure. And yes, whose fault? Hehe. <laughs> Asphalt. <laughs> Asphalt. The budget speech went on for so long it felt like Hammond was trying to compensate for the loss of the spring budget by talking until it arrived again. And what makes all that worse is really he could have just turned up and said, well, I don't fucking know because shitting Brexit in it, and then walked out of the Commons, and we'd still be in exactly the same position, but ultimately a lot less bored. Meanwhile, across the pond in the US, they can probably scrap fictional Halloween scary stories altogether as the week brought two major abhorrent events. Firstly, the MAGA bomber, a man who went from being a DJ, bodybuilder, male dancer and pizza delivery man to sending bombs to many major Democrats. Yeah, now I've read all those jobs out in a row, actually. I mean, that escalated pretty much like I expected. Caesar Sayok sent glass-filled bombs to news stations, former president and the affable black guy in a horror film who goes too soon only for chaos to follow, Barack Obama, and woman whose only Halloween costume is healthy Christopher Walken, Hillary Clinton. And he did this all because he's a fan of, you guessed it, US president and the only person even the thing would go, nah, I'm not going to impersonate that, Donald Trump. It's funny though, isn't it? Because it's not like bronzed hemorrhoid Trump has ever incited violence against his enemies or anything like that. So it's so weird that someone would, uh, you know, be a fan of his and then want to bomb everyone. It's really so, really weird. It's so totally unexpected. Luckily, no one was heard by Sayek's attempts. And once again, the presidents responded to these attacks by going down the tactful, empathetic route and said the whole thing was being used by the media to score political points against him with the midterm elections coming up. It is a shame that in his constant desire to make everything about how he's the victim and in need of attention, that he didn't make some sort of speech about how unfair it was that everyone else was getting sent bombs except him, the true president, as I think that would have gained a lot more public support. But while Caesar Sayok's attempts failed, sadly, the week ended with a truly, truly upsetting shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, where a white supremacist racist arsehole shot 11 Jewish people dead. The Nazi shooter known as Robert Bowers, a man who yet again in face alone proves white people are not the master race but more a sort of moving grubby Play-Doh sculpture. He wasn't a Trump supporter but according to his social media it was only because Trump was not racist enough for him in a move no one could ever have quite expected considering just how divisive, bigoted and well racist Trump has been over the past two years. It's like if someone told you they didn't like Bono because he wasn't smug enough. Again, the president's thoughtful, kind and leader-like response to this really upsetting event was to suggest that those inside the synagogue should have had more guns as protection. Yes, of course, that makes sense, doesn't it? More guns to protect against more guns. And if you are afraid of being attacked by an alligator, what you should really do is fill your home with lots of even bigger alligators. In recent years, terror attacks in the US by far-right white nationalists have exceeded those caused by radical Islamists in the 15 years following 9-11, which makes me wonder if maybe, actually, loads of global leaders should look to Trump for inspiration and possibly make some sort of, I don't know, an immigration ban maybe applicable just to those who hold certain dangerous beliefs. I suggest full body searches at airports for anyone with a mullet wearing denim and playing kid rock on their phones. Speaking of dangerous beliefs and leaders who deliver hate like it's a takeaway leaflet, Brazil have elected Jair Bolsonaro, a man who looks like Sam Neill has been given an old gypsy curse, as their president. Bolsonaro is known mainly for his racist, misogynistic and homophobic comments, but also for the fact that he hasn't committed fraud and corruption, unlike many other Brazilian politicians. While he's currently being called the Brazilian Trump, it's likely he's actually even more of a threat to the citizens of his country on account of being so clearly caught up in 
hatefulness, he doesn't even have time to do all the sort of dodgy shit Trump does. I'm also concerned that with Bolsonaro's comments on foreigners and his backing of police getting the right to shoot who they want, that big Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio is in serious trouble and he already has his hands up. Back in the UK, Prime Minister and Frankenstein, Doctor or Monster? Correct. Theresa May has kept her job after her meeting with the select Conservative group the 1922 was said by one unnamed MP to be more of a petting zoo than a lion's den. All these meetings are incredibly secret with no press allowed, so we don't know exactly what went on, but judging by that description, I really hope everyone washed their hands afterwards. Home Secretary and Parliamentary Count Orlak, Sajid Javid, has had to apologise to over 400 people who were wrongly forced to take DNA tests to prove they could live in Britain. Still, maybe this explains why, as recent reports into harassment in Parliament have confirmed, so many that work there seem eager to give theirs away all the time. The European Parliament has backed an EU-wide ban into selling arms to Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the escalation of the Yemen war. But Conservative MEPs abstained from the vote because, as one said, they were still awaiting answers from the Saudi Arabian government, which, considering they murdered an investigative journalist, they're clearly not keen on revealing details anytime soon. What sort of answers? There are very few questions in the world that are so pertinent that while you're waiting for them to reply, you can just give the person you're asking a shit ton of weapons. Oh, excuse me, are are you going to use that to massacre people? Oh, you're keeping Sturm. Ah, oh, well, here you go. Here's some heavy artillery as promised. Have fun and drop me a line when you're feeling chatty. Another possible glimpse at the UK's post-Brexit future are concerns from Liberal Democrat leader and hollow man Vince Cable that a cat-handed immigration policy could stop certain dancers from appearing on popular jig show Strictly Come Dancing. What better analogy for Brexit than a bunch of people dancing round in circles all by themselves? Number 10 said it wouldn't ruin the programme, but then why would we trust the people who thought they could waltz through negotiations but instead have to last-minute cha-cha-cha because of all their endless jive? Hey, pod fiends, how's you? I'm a bit cold, to be honest. I mean, uh, the heating's on, but there is really odd chill in this room for some reason. Bit odd. Anyway, probably just me. Um, anyway, thank you for listening in to this nonsense again. What are you doing for Halloween? Staying indoors and whispering fuck off every time children ring your doorbell? Me too! Snap! I haven't even sorted a Halloween costume yet, um, but I'm struggling to work out what really scary thing to go as. Uh, should I be the last 5% of Brexit negotiations? Should I be Donald Trump's umbrella or Boris Johnson's just general notebook of ideas? Who knows? Um, I've spent the weekend, this past weekend, not doing halloween things at all but uh doing kids shows uh in freezing freezing cold ireland uh where i made the mistake of assuming that because the temperature in ireland was according to a weather things the same as london i could wear the same clothes as i was wearing in london and then i arrived and i forgot the cold wind on the emerald isle likes to punch you in the face like a sack of iced bricks so uh in between shows i mainly huddled in the warmth and drank proper guinness with comedian beck hill um you know like proper guinness you know like they only have in ireland where it tastes of like creamy happiness unlike the one you can buy in the uk that tastes very much of years of oppression. Anyway, uh, the whole trip was a lot of fun, except I had to fly with Ryanair, which is something I was absolutely dreading, um, you know, because of the recent controversy. And uh, I, I booked it before then, but, you know, you can't really just... I don't have the money to cancel these things. And, of course, the flights were uncomfortable and delayed, and, you know, all the things that would just make you wonder if you'd had a better experience in general if you just sat in a barrel and someone lobbed you over the water with a catapult. So the whole thing was awful. I do wonder, actually, if Ryanair pandering to racists and constantly making time keeping promises that they failed to deliver and sort of having a constant substandard service. I wonder if that's actually just all part of their plan to have a really successful post-Brexit business in Britain. 
Um, very possibly. Uh, me and Beck did contemplate just calling each other words like gammon or honky throughout the flight to see if we could get an upgrade. But, you know, sitting together on that flight cost more just to select your seat. So we didn't bother and we just had crap journeys at opposite ends of the plane. Stupid, stupid, awful Ryanair. Anyway, <laughs> oh, oh, still cold. Um, so weird. Anyway, this radio is definitely on film, sitting right by the radiator. So anyway, anyway, only a brief bit of admin on this week's Halloween special. Uh, the time of year when I almost welcome creepy beasties and monsters because seriously, being terrorised by them would be a blessed relief compared to just watching how constantly scary politics is. Um, so this week, I would like to thank though uh, Andy for joining the Patreon and for some reason, um, actually being pleased by the crap extras I put on there. Thanks, Andy. Very kind of you. One day, I will put better things on there too. One day. One day. Um, if you too would like to donate towards this podcast with either money or blood or various organs. I mean, it is Halloween. Um, maybe actually just money. I'm not sure I'd want you to send me your spleen in the post. If anything, the cleaning up I'd have to do to dispose of it or the years of difficulty trying to get myself out of the organ black market would probably just hinder the creation of this show quite a lot so better uh, really for a monthly money donation uh, head to patreon.com forward slash bro or if you want to do a one-off donation you can do uh, ko-fi.com ko-fi.com forward slash bro and give me the equivalent of a coffee um, money wise that is don't just send me tea in the post or slushing around in the envelope and scolding the postman um, if you can review this show on your favourite pod app or as it's Halloween, favourite odd trap. Yeah, uh, then then do that. Um, you see, while I prefer an iTunes review, because it's Halloween week, I'm really in the mood. If you want to write five stars uh, and why you like the show on an old steel jaw, then go for it. And as your victim screams in agony while misstepping as you chase them through the woods, perhaps they'll look down, read it and think, well, if I survive this, I'll give it a listen. And of course, most of all, do tell everyone you know, alive or dead, to tune in. Uh, although I am worried if ghosts give this a go, they'll just give it a medium rating. <laughs> Anyway, that is all the important stuff. So, on to this week's show, which includes... Sorry, uh, a bit of indigestion. Um, I was just going to say, on this week's Halloween special show, I speak to Graham Thompson from Greenpeace about genuinely the most scary thing happening to the planet, climate change. Uh, Plus, budget, budget, budget stuff. And, of course, Brexit fallout, because you have to have those really boring moments in horror films, you know, with all the tropes where all the characters do really stupid things. So the uh, jumps really work at other points, right? I mean, that is... That's Brexit all over, isn't it? Just lots and lots of boring stuff leading to something that's actually going to really scare us. Um, Pretty sure if the government actually decided to tackle the Book of the Dead, we'd be assured that they'd sort it all out and everything was going fine, while Rob ran around possessed by a ghost and Michael Gove violated a tree, because it would definitely happen that way round. And at some point, I will hopefully work out why this room is just... Why it's so chilly. Um, Anyway, before all that, here is this. Brexit fallout! Once again, it's great to be able to report that little to nothing is happening. If Brexit was a horror movie, it would be... No, wait, that doesn't work because it is one. But if it was another one, it would be the Blair Witch Project because absolutely nothing happens for ages and then all of a sudden everything's really scary and then it causes a really bad series of sequels to follow. While Mays temporarily managed to calm down her own hordes, uh, her previous promise that Brexit is 95% has been smashed down by European Parliament's Brexit negotiator and Elton John if he'd been buried in the pet cemetery, Guy Verhofstadt, who said actually it's 0% progress because the Irish border issue has still not been sorted. And Verhofstadt is... Not completely right, actually, as a handful of tiny, tiny things have been done. And, you know, several people have said the words backstop so often that if they did it into a mirror, Candyman would appear just to tell them to stop and fuck off because it's really annoying. And how would they like it if he turned up to their workplace and actually did some work or something? So... 
things have happened. And if you want to get picky, it's more likely that progress is somewhere between 95% and 0%. So maybe, I'm just hazarding guess, based on my limited knowledge of everything that's happened so far, it's probably something like um, 3%. Yeah, take that guy. How dare you insult our PM like that? Slam! Look how far we've come. Three goddamn percent. Slam! There's my British values on the coffee table. Yes, I will remove them before you call the police. But there's three bits of news, right? Three bits of Brexit news that I've got to tell you about, all of which fit nicely with this week's seasonal theme. Yes, well spotted. That means they'll all make you feel uneasy and probably quite concerned. Perfect. First up, first bit of info. The National Audit Office have released a report on the preparation for a no-deal Brexit. And let's just say that if they put in as much effort into the report as the government have put into prepping for a no-deal, then I'd be doing this bit about the National Audit Office scribbles on a beer mat that was found in the bin. 11 out of 12 of the projects that are due to replace existing EU border ones won't be delivered on time for Brexit, due to no one delivering any of the other bits on time and no one having a clue what they're doing ever and so being completely unable to prepare for it. The NAO report says Border Force haven't got enough staff or have any idea of how many staff they'll actually need. They say that HMRC reckon a quarter of a million traders will have to fill out customs declarations, which they've not had to do before and it could take ages or they'll get it wrong, and loads of ports, including Dover, will be likely to become some sort of car park full of lorries, which are I guess is a lorry park. Which, if Kent is the Garden of England, and under Conservative rule it then gets tarmacked over, I do sort of feel that's a lovely analogy for their kind of ideological neoliberalism overall. Hmm, nice. The NAO, or NAO, if you like Harry Belafonte, have now said it's too late to prepare borders for a no-deal Brexit, which apparently will be a total gift for organised criminals, thanks to the criminally unorganised. The second thing is that a study by King's College London suggests that 42% of the British public still believe that the promise that Brexit will give £350 million to the NHS, you know, the one that was plastered across a big red bus with all of the grace but none of the truth as wash me written on the back of a dirty van, that promise, they still believe that one, that one, that one, that one there, that definitely isn't true. There's been no evidence that it's going to happen and the extra money the government have since pledged to the NHS isn't going to come from Brexit, they've already said that. And yet 42% of the public still believe it. Similarly, a recent report by the Migration Advisory Committee said EU migrants contribute £4.7 billion more to the economy than they take, but only 29% of the public believe that. So what that means is if Brexit goes ahead full throttle, then they're all going to be really angry when they realise they've been lied to, or if it doesn't go ahead full throttle, then they're going to be really angry that all the things they believe in have been blocked. So that's our divided kingdom right there, and it really does feel like nothing will bring us together except maybe some mad alien invasion where we can all unite to be xenophobic towards them instead. On the plus side, I do look forward to the government being comically chased around Parliament Square by an angry mob with pitchforks a la Dracula, but with way more suckers. Oh, and thirdly... Liam Fox is total disgrace. Liam Fox, what a waste of space. Liam Fox, just look at his face like a rubbish contestant on the chase. Claiming expenses, taking his friend all over the place. Liam Fox, what a total disgrace. Liam Fox, what a total disgrace. Like a bad document you can't erase. Like when someone only types in lowercase. Liam Fox, what a total disgrace. Liam Fox, what a total disgrace. So this week is not something disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox the Disgrace, a.k.a. the guy in all horror movies who selfishly tries to escape for his own good and then gets impaled on something or eaten by a dinosaur because karma, hooray. It's not something he said this week, but it's something he said before. Well, several times before, actually, including last October when Liam Fox said Britain would make a good success out of crashing out of the EU and resorting to World Trade Organisation rules. And he talked then about how he would immediately agree 43 trade deals the minute we left, like Johnny 
trade deals. Do you remember that? He's like, yeah, I got all the trade deals. Trade deals in my pockets, trade deals in my eyes. Do you remember all that? The man who couldn't even get more than one expert on trade on his own governmental board of trade. Mr. I've got loads of friends, but they all live across town and go to another school. Do you remember when he said that? Well, it seems... The US, China and Russia are just three out of 20 countries who are going to block Britain from agreeing a fast track with the World Trade Organization because their trade agreements will all depend on how EU quotas are split once we go, so it's not really beneficial to them if we just go in all guns are blazing. It's almost as if Liam, the International Trade Secretary, didn't understand how international trade works. Still, there you go, Liam. I mean, I expect we'll get an I'm wrong, sorry, and maybe a resignation from him as an apology any day now. Any day now. Any... Day now, Liam. Liam, if only he did understand international trade and could somehow swap himself for anyone even more remotely competent or anything more competent, really. I mean, let's put a cat in the job. My old cat Claws would bring in heads of dead rats in return for us feeding her. Not that we wanted the rats' heads, but, you know, still still something in return. She'd have been better in Fox's job anyway, or at least she'd have tried to attack his head. So, win-win. Who knows, by this time next week, someone else may have pointed out things everyone's been saying all along, while other things people have been saying are again pointed out as wrong if they have been by other cleverer people for over two years. Meanwhile, no one would believe any of it. But still, it wouldn't be Halloween without Project Fear, would it? It's often remarked that horror films provide some sort of social commentary analogy for the world that we live in, which is why most horror films now just involve monsters going, what's the fucking point, before drinking themselves to death in a graveyard and hoping no one bothers them. Famously, Dawn of the Dead mock consumerism, or more recently, Get Out was a biting critique on racism in the US. But now, in 2018, how can horror films try to comment on the scariest thing in the world, climate change? I mean, is there a Twilight Zone-esque scenario where scientists try to warn people about a monster that's obviously there, but companies and government ignore it and keep making monster food that lures in its destruction? And when warned by the scientists they have to stop making the monster food, they claim that there isn't a monster, so why does it matter? And that it's all political agenda, only for the climax of the film to happen 50 years later when loads of people who believed the warnings but were too young to do anything about them die by being eaten by a monster and then everyone realises their grandparents were shit. I mean, it's convoluted, but I reckon if you've got Jeff Goldblum in it, it'll be a box office hit. Always the magic of Goldblum. A few weeks ago, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, they wrote a report that stated the planet had 12 years to make significant changes in carbon emissions, or, well, to paraphrase, a big fat monster will eat all our children. But in a world where the ocean is so full of plastic, most edible fish is now caught already tupperware or where government-approving fracking in Lancashire has had to stop because of earthquakes everyone warned them would have happened have started happening, in that world, it's obvious that drastic action is needed on a much larger scale, rather than, you know, you or me just not flushing the loo every time we use it, which I'll be honest, I only really do when I'm visiting someone else's house. So what does the IPCC report mean? How do we do anything about it? And can I call my film idea Carbon in the Woods? This week, I spoke to Graham Thompson at Greenpeace UK, who's been an eco-activist for quite some years and was kind enough to explain to me just how terrible a situation we're in. Greenpeace, as I'm sure many of you know, are an, and I quote, independent global campaigning organisation acting to changing attitudes and behaviour to protect the environment and promote peace, all of which sounds right up my street with its terrible, terrible air quality. Climate change is something that scares me on a day-to-day basis, not least because seeing conkers arrive about two months ago but still seeing flowers around now is massively confusing me, and I can't cope with going outside in sunglasses and a rain jacket at the same time, let alone consider what it's going to be like for my daughter to have to spend her 30s living underwater. 
It is, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest problem there is, you know, bigger than Brexit, bigger than all that other stuff. What with, you know, us all having to live on Earth for the foreseeable future. And whenever I hear someone complain that, oh, wind farms look ugly, I always think, yeah, but you know what looks worse? The end of the world. Stop it, dickhead. So talking to Graham was both interesting, useful and still, at times, terrifying. So I thought, perfect for the Halloween edition. We spoke for quite a long time, so I'm going to release an extra 15 minutes of our chat later in the week, where Graham talked to me about some of the non-violent direct action he's taken as an activist, both with Greenpeace uh, and uh, elsewhere, um, as well as some fascinating facts about car pollution. So do check that out as well. Um, but first, this week, here is this episode's part of the interview. Here is Graham. What were the main takeaways from the IPCC report, apart from the fact that it's obviously terrifying uh, that we've only got 12 years to fix everything? Um, well, it's, it's big and complicated and deals with a lot of issues. Um, but uh, I think the key point is that we need to get out of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Um, and within that, we should start off by getting rid of coal as quickly as possible, which the UK is not doing too badly on. We have a coal phase-out date of 2025, um, in theory, we shouldn't be burning any coal in the UK for electricity after that. Um, there are other European countries that are more or less as good as us on that and others which have a deadline of 2030. Germany doesn't have a deadline, so they're a bit of a problem on that particular issue. Um, but of course, China, India and whatever have much bigger coal industries and that needs to be looked at. There's lots of other uh, important issues there to do with the difference between 1.5 degrees, which is what we're all supposed to be aiming at under the Paris Agreement, and 2 degrees, which was sort of the previous target under um, IPCC or UNFCCC um, agreements. So that half a degree difference between 1.5 degrees warming and 2 degrees warming, what does that mean in terms of the species you lose, the extra flooding you have, the heat waves, the extreme weather, that type of stuff. So the report was supposed to give us a clear idea of the benefits of limiting warming to 1.5 instead of allowing it to go all the way to 2 and those those are very significant uh, it also showed how difficult it's going to be to stick to 1.5 the commitments that countries have made all the way around the world uh, take us to 3 um, which is a massive catastrophe we really really want to avoid that um, 2 is pretty bad um, hence the, uh, the new target of 1.5 but 3 is really really not a good idea um, so yes the benefits of doing it, how to do it, get out of fossil fuels, um, make, make ourselves far more efficient and far cleaner as quickly as possible, uh, and the difficulties. So um, a, lot of, a lot of it talks about BECS, which is uh, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, and that's where you suck carbon out of the atmosphere in some method. In, with bioenergy, it's by growing crops and burning them, so growing trees, sucks carbon out of the atmosphere. You burn the trees, which sounds like a really bad idea, but you trap the carbon dioxide from burning the trees and bury that under the ground. So the net effect, the overall effect of that process is that you're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and putting it on the ground. Um, and you get energy from it while you're doing it. Um, so a lot of uh, projections from the IPCC about how we can limit our emissions to a level where we can stay at 1.5 involve using a lot of BECs um, to get a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, and that's problematic because BECs doesn't exist. Um, the technologies 
exist as experimental um, engineering, but we don't have a BEX industry as yet. So the idea that an enormous BEX industry is going to save us is slightly worrying. Um, there are ways of sticking to 1.5 without BEX, um, but that means much faster cuts, much faster closing down of fossil fuel infrastructure and fossil fuel industries. And it's, I mean, BEX, you said it doesn't really exist yet. Is it close to existing? And I mean, is there also a problem if you've got to grow trees and then burn them? Haven't the trees got to have time to grow as well? Is, is 12 years enough time for any of that? <laughs> this is a good point. Um, so when you're talking about timescales of climate change, it always becomes a little bit complicated because you have a lag between the emissions and the impacts. So the pollution that we're pumping up today isn't going to cause the climate to change tomorrow. It's going to cause the climate to change in 10, 20 years. Um, and so this is a huge political problem because it means that the benefits you get from clean technology don't come under the government that makes them happen. They come under, you know, three governments down the line. And obviously the government's thinking, well, why would I be unpopular for closing this thing or making that thing more expensive or causing uh, disruption to the economy when the benefits from that process are actually going to be accrued by a different government, different politicians after I've retired. Uh, and that's a, a, a retarding factor on, on climate progress in the political sphere. Um, so, yeah, these 12 years, what that essentially means is that um, in 12 years, we will have emitted enough to get ourselves to this 1.5 degrees warming. We won't necessarily have had the full 1.5 degrees, but we will have emitted enough that it become unavoidable. We've caused it, even though we haven't experienced the effect yet. Um, can we do all this in... 12 years. Well, um, like one of the key figures here is we're supposed to pretty much halve emissions by 2030. So not get rid of them entirely. We're supposed to get rid of them entirely by 2050, um, but halve them by 2030. Um, yes, it is possible. Yes, we do have the technology. We have amazing electric, electric cars. The prices of renewable technologies have absolutely plummeted in recent years. Uh, it's a really spectacular thing, the kind of thing that economists would say shouldn't really happen. Um, if you look at the cost of solar panels, since the 1970s, they've gone down by about 99.9%. It's, it's absurd. But they went down by a big chunk, something like 18%, I think it was, this year. Um, they're just absolutely plummeting. This is partly because China is mass-producing them on such a huge scale. Um, and, you know, you've got such a massive expansion in the industry that the economies of scale are really, really kicking in. And you're getting the same thing in wind. It's not quite as dramatic as it is with solar, but you, you got uh, like a 50% drop in the price of offshore wind over just a few years recently. Um, so not only do we have the technology in theory, it's cheap, it's affordable, but you're talking about an enormous process of replacing most of the world's energy infrastructure over a short period of time. Um, so it is actually going to be a huge challenge, even if you had all the governments properly committed. And of course, we don't have all of the governments properly committed. Uh, we still have to worry about Trump uh, and Saudi and various other uh, less enthusiastic countries about cutting carbon emissions. Um, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because I mean, China's really interesting in that I know they've done incredible work at uh, cutting their um, carbon emissions, but it's through what I've, I've heard someone term as pragmatic authoritarianism, which is still authoritarianism. <laughs> they just sort of, it basically forced people to stop. Um, 
Is that kind of the worryingly the only way to get things done quickly, though? Because we still seem to have so much um, resistance from people like you said, Trump or Saudi Arabia, who don't seem to be worried about the world burning. I mean, it's really I mean, it's one of these things that I can't contemplate because it genuinely terrifies me. So why, you know, what's the way forward here and why are there still so many barriers in, in for people to go along with this? Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of truth in what you say about China having the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party, I should say, having the power to make things happen in a way that other countries don't. Other countries don't have quite such uh, rigid control over their populations and their industries and their economy. Um, and as long as China's trying to do the right thing, obviously, that's quite useful. I mean, it's it is authoritarian. I don't want to uh, sound like I'm endorsing it, uh, the Chinese political system. Um, but the fact that they can say, right, we're going to produce vast quantities of solar panels or we're going to close a thousand coal-fired power stations or whatever, and they can just do it, um, obviously makes them very effective at uh, reforming their economy in, in short periods of time. And one of the nice things about China is when they say they're going to do something, when they say they're going to hit a target, what that normally means is that they're absolutely certain they're going to do much better than that target five years before they say they will. They have a sort of slightly different attitude to targets than we do. They, they wouldn't offer to hit one unless they knew they were going to do much better than that. Um, so when you, when you hear China say, oh, we're going to cut our emissions by this much by this time, not only can you trust them to do that, but generally you can trust them to do better. Um, obviously, with European countries at the moment, we're struggling to meet a lot of our targets. The UK's, of course, for our targets. Germany's, of course, their targets, and this like jeopardizes European targets. However, Saudi Arabia, obviously, completely autocratic regime, complete control over their economy, complete control over their entire country, doesn't mean that they're good guys. Doesn't mean they're doing anything useful. Um, so it's not not the case that authoritarianism equals good in the climate debate at all. Um, authoritarianism means whatever you're doing, you can do it quickly. Uh, but some authoritarian authoritarian governments are doing the wrong thing. Uh, what is holding us back, though? Um, I think there's a lot of intrinsic issues with climate change that make it difficult. Um, I mentioned before the timescale thing that the government that institutes the change takes the economic hit, and the government that gets the benefit will be 10, 20 years down the line. And that's a restraining problem um, on climate action from a political point of view. Um, obviously, with... Um, our entire global economy being so fossil fuel based. These days, a lot of the richest companies in the world tend to be tech companies. But if you look back five to 10 years, uh, the majority of the richest com companies in the world were oil companies. Seven out of 10, I think it was in the, in, in the top 10. Um, there's just so much money in fossil fuels. Uh, it's such a big chunk of our economy. Um, if you had total agreement on, on the whole human population that, yes, we need to get out of fossil fuels, it would still be a slightly tricky and slightly delicate job to do it without causing a big economic collapse. When you've got people with their pensions invested in those fossil fuels who are resistant to, to that, then obviously that becomes difficult. And of course, the fossil fuel companies themselves are massively powerful. They have huge influence over say the American government as an example, you could argue that the Saudi government pretty much is a fossil fuel company. Um, and Russia is a petro state. Um, most of Russia's exports are petrochemicals. So from their point of view, closing down the petrochemical industry uh, is a rather scary prospect. So yeah, generally, unfortunately, we've got rather heavily addicted to something that's doing us an enormous amount of harm. 
and even recognising that it's doing us enormous amount of harm doesn't necessarily cure the addiction. Wow, that's nice and cheery. I mean, when, it, when, it's, when there's so much at stake and so many people so invested in it, I mean, where does that put kind of, you know, the hope for the future in, in getting, for example, um, things down to 1.5 uh, degrees? Like, if, if, if a country like Russia doesn't want to have anything to do with it, how do you go about persuading them? Well, we, we live in a very interconnected global economy, and when you start getting over two degrees that's quite likely to collapse and that's not really going to make anyone much money. Um, I mean, the uncontrolled climate change, climate change getting well above our targets um, is very, very dangerous and you you can't maintain a sort of secure, luxurious lifestyle in a three degree, four degree world. Um, you know, it's all, it's going to get pretty nasty for pretty much everyone. Um, so there is that stick to try and beat people with and get them to change. Um, and there are very positive things. For example, um, the crashing cost of renewable energy, um, the cheapest way of generating electricity in Britain is onshore wind farms. Um, now the government's, blocking those um, for various difficult to decipher reasons. But if you want cheap electricity in Britain, you build onshore wind farms. Um, so the economics are working with us. But what you have is the inertia, the vested interest to have their money in old technologies, even though the new technologies are more efficient. If you've invested enough in the old technologies, then you fight the battle to keep those going. Um, so people who own coal-fired power stations don't want them to be closed down, obviously. Uh, but whilst the barriers are enormous, the urgency has been recognised. Um, that's really what the Paris Agreement was. It was the moment that the, the entire world said, yeah, we really need to take this seriously. And you have the technology. I mean, electric cars, far, far better than internal combustion engines in almost every way. Like electric motor, one moving part. Why on earth have we been using these Victorian devices that power themselves with explosions and a hundred moving parts when you've got an electric motor, which is just so much more efficient and effective and smooth and better acceleration and everything. Um, so technology is with us, economics is with us, it's vested interests that are the, the real barrier. Is um, sort of uh, being stuck in, kind of stuck in our ways, I suppose, one of the biggest problems as well with, with plastic in the oceans. That's the other big uh, environmental problem that's been highlighted recently and, and people suddenly become aware of, despite it being a problem for many years. Is it the fact that just we're so used to everything being in plastic and obviously, again, the money in the plastic industry, is, is that the, the biggest sort of hurdle in, in tackling that effectively? Well, the, of course, the plastic industry is the petrochemical industry. <laughs> so we get back, oh, sure, get course, back to where course. we were before. They're absolutely enormous. And when you tell them we're going to have to stop burning oil, their first, uh, well, obviously their first response is no. Um, but <laughs> their second response is, ah, well, we'll make it into plastic. Um, so, yes, you have the, the, those enormous uh, petrochemical conglomerates uh, being a, a force for ill in terms of the plastics problem. But also, in the same way that fossil fuels are incredibly useful because they're so energy dense, you know, you have a small amount of petrol or uh, small amount of diesel or gas or coal and you get a lot of energy out of it and that's very useful uh plastics are a wonder material they're you know colorful shiny um incredibly cheap uh and they last forever uh which at one point probably seemed like a really good thing until we realized that they're going to last forever in our oceans 
and that it was actually a really bad thing. And is, I mean, if, if, forgive me, my stupidity here, but is, is plastics in the ocean also linked to the kind of climate going up? You know, would a reduction of plastics in the ocean help towards um, the IPCC target as well? Yes, but in a very complicated and round the houses sort of way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, ecosystems are carbon sinks. Uh, The marine ecosystem, uh, the living things in the ocean are mostly made of carbon. Um, If they die, that carbon will be released. Um, If you have more life in the oceans, then it's a bigger carbon sink. It's absorbing more atmospheric carbon, well, more carbon from the oceans, which is absorbed from the atmosphere. So if you have healthy marine ecosystems, you have better marine carbon sinks, and that reduces climate change. Um, The plastics in the ocean are a threat to the marine ecosystem and therefore reduce the ocean's ability to act as a carbon sink. Uh, So, (laughs) I mean, everything's interconnected. This is the great and tragic thing about environmentalism. (laughs) But um, the plastics thing is a problem in itself, largely or primarily for marine ecosystems now but it does get everywhere uh, i mean I'm, I'm 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 reluctant to say this but you know it, there's quite a lot of it in you you know there's a lot of plastic in your bloodstream there's plastic in various of your organs um and you know we're hoping that it doesn't do you any harm we don't really know yet god that's really worrying so i'm partly plastic right now I'm afraid so, yeah. Wow, I'd have thought at least my skin would look better. There you go. <laughs> I'm slightly upset by that. <laughs> yeah, no, there's worries. It has, um, has been shown to cross the blood-brain barrier in some species, and that's a big worry. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to go into any detail about that, but it sounds bad. Um, and potential for it to cross the placenta as well, which is obviously always a worry with uh, artificial chemicals. Um, entering the human body, if they can cross the placenta into a a developing baby, that's normally a big cause of worry. Um, We don't have data on plastics causing health problems in humans, um, so I don't want anyone to panic. It may be the case that it's a pretty minor risk for us. There are marine organisms which are taking a pounding from this, and uh, uh, their populations are crashing because of plastic pollution. We'll be back with Graham in a minute, but first... Budget, budget, it's another budget, 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 it's Philip Hammond's budget, loads of financials, loads of talk of money, loads of jokes, but none of them are... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Budget, 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 Philip Evans budget, budget, budget. It's another budget, budget, budget. Such a long budget, 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 budget. Usually, uh, when there's a budget, I get an expert in to talk about it. You probably know that if you're a long-time listener. Um, last time, it was Dr. Marianne Stevenson from the Women's Budget Group. Uh, before that, I had guests from the New Economics Foundation or Positive Money. You know, people who know what it's all about and study it and really know what they're talking about. This year, though, um, I'm doing it myself. Why TNN, you ask? Well, I'll tell you, impatient one. When will you tell it to me? Now, as soon as you stop interrupting. OK, I'll stop interrupting. Just stop it. <clears throat> you might be thinking that after doing this show over two years, uh, I've gained all the brainy economic skills to do it all by myself, and that's why I'm going to do it just by myself. Well, nopey nope, you are wrong. Uh, is it that I've been tipped off by a professional clever type as to what to say about the budget? Nah, wrong again. Is it that you're secretly Philip Hammond in a really weird disguise that involves him doing lots of hair growing and contorting? How dare you? What are you even trying to say about my joke-telling skills? It's none of those things, you rude person. It is, in fact... Just that this budget was so lame that it's not even worth me going into it all that much. Seriously. Like, if you missed this budget and went straight to the next budget, you wouldn't even need a previously on bit to know where you were. It was entirely little bits of money boosts that aren't actually enough to help anywhere, but are just enough so the government can say they're doing more than they have done since the last time they didn't do anything. I mean... Right at the top of the budget speech, old Hammy Face Hammond said wage growth was at its highest in a decade, but didn't mention that wages are still lower than they were over 10 years ago. There was a point when Tired Phil said that every Chancellor likes to have a rabbit in his hat as he approaches the budget, which could be some weird private school thing, true, but actually it seemed more like Damon Lindelof's scripting work, where it was Hammond's reveal that actually all of this very, very long, very dull, very, very long, so long, even longer than that, think about how long it was, even longer than that, budget, even longer than that, was basically just a shitty trick that loads of others do every year and it's not getting any more impressive. And it makes loads of rabbits sad. So ignoring the fact that depending on the outcome of the Brexit negotiations, every single thing he said may no longer be canon anyway, and we'll just end up in the pile of deleted scenes that are definitely deleted for a reason, ignoring that, here's a few little things from this year's budget to take note of. The Office of Budget Responsibility have upgraded their growth forecast from 1.3% last year to 1.6% instead for this year. Hooray! But it was originally 2% and then Brexit happened and then it dropped down. So it's a lot like saying, hey, everyone predicted you would live originally and then they said you would die. And now it turns out, good news, they're going to keep your left foot cryogenically alive for 50 years. But only your foot and tourists will be able to look at it and point and say, ugh, a foot and it's alive. That's exactly what it's like. Exactly. See? Who needs clever budget understanding interviewees? Me. I, I do. It's still me. I, I really do. 
Despite all Phil Hammond's fancy chat that borrowing would be less than projected, it's still pretty much exactly what it's been every year for ages. And at the moment, it still means they can't balance the books until 2028-2029, unless they cut spending again real soon. And that's a bit of a different outlook to when old invaders from Mars, George Osborne, said in 2013 that they'd have a surplus by 2020. Sir Minus, more like, am I right? Personal tax allowance is going up to £12,500, which doesn't really help that budget surplus at all, and basically says to people, we know you're still earning shit wages, and we're not going to change that. An extra £2 billion is going to mental health, but that's coming out of the extra NHS £20.5 billion that was already announced. So it isn't new money, nor is that NHS money entirely explained where that's going to be coming from, especially as they're now giving more tax cuts. £2 billion is also only half of what's needed to run mental health services efficiently, so it is helpful in the way that if you're chronically dehydrated, having water flicked at your face is probably better than nothing, but it's also still not a glass of water. And having water flicked in your face is really annoying. Can you, can you stop it? Stop it. Schools are getting a one of £400 million bonus, which sounds great, but also ignores, you know, that kids keep happening and keep going to school, and it's not just a limited edition thing. And funding per pupil has been cut by 8% since 2010, and £400 million is only a 3% rise, so they're still 5% down, and that is only for a one-off. Bloody kids just keep happening like that. It's so selfish. Also, especially weird when you consider that potholes get £420 million. That's £20 million more than schools. Basically, holes in the road are more important than your children, despite kids causing just as much damage to your car if you hit one. There's an extra £500 million for Brexit preparations, which will buy some snacks for all those lorry drivers that will be sitting still for two to three years on the M2. And, of course, there's a commemorative Brexit 50p coin made from nickel and copper, two things that we have to import. So, you never know, they may actually become more valuable than 50p one day, and by that I mean if you have a wheelbarrow of them in 2022, you might be able to buy a potato. Look, I'm not going to be too grumpy. There are some good things in the budget, like uh, business rates relief on public loos, which, yes, he made all those jokes about business and relief already, and he did them so badly. I'm just going to skim over that. Um, anyway, there's also uh, a new tax on non-recyclable plastic packaging because, I mean, that's great. You know, it's going to fight the, the plastic pollution in the earth. And, and I just think that tax, and just imagine as the last whale in the world is choking on a 12-foot ball of straws, they'll be able to think... Ah, at least the money gained from these will go towards someone not wetting themselves in public. There's also £2 million going to Belfast to help them recover from the three-day Primark fire, which not only helps repair the damage, and that's good, but it also sweetens the DUP real nicey-nice. And also £2 million, that should allow Belfast to buy about, what, 6,000 new Primarks? Mm, Around that? Also, Hammond announced the end of PFI schemes, which is long overdue, and they've been training public services for many years. And that's a smart move from Philly, although he hasn't yet said how they'll refund all the services who've been spending way too much money on their PFI scheme debt and being completely depleted as a result. So really, just stop flicking that water at me. I'm not some grass on a hot day. Bloody hell. There's also other bits and bobs of good as well. And all increases in funding for public services are, you know, an increase rather than a decrease. So that's better than a decrease. That's how it, in and D, that's how it works, isn't it? But when played off against the lack of any funding mentioned for police who have suffered massive cuts, or when you look at Philip Hammond's boast that 3.3 million more people are in work since 2010, even though it's partly to do with there being more people in general, and also zero hours jobs happening and apprenticeships and self-employment all counting as employed, then look, I'm just saying, we We've all seen the rabbit trick and it's shit. It's really shit. It's just a rabbit in your hat. At least do that one where the card appears in the car door window. 
Come on, Phil. Oh, and anyway, Brexity Brexit could just mean that all of this turned out to be a dream and the timeline is reset. Yeah, yeah, imagine that. It could be that I watched Philip Hammond talk for an hour and all I got was this lousy podcast bit. And that's why deleted scenes are shit. Fact. And now, back to Graham. And are, I mean, in the UK, are any of the kind of proposed policies in reducing plastic use... Any of them seem good? Are they likely to be effective? Because, I mean, just personally, one of the ones that I remember them uh, saying that made me feel just really sort of disappointed was the idea of a slightly faster aisle in the supermarket if you don't have plastics. And I thought, is that really going to work? It didn't seem enough uh, to me. But is there anything that, that we're doing at the moment or that's proposed that you think might be effective? Uh, um, well. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good noise. <laughs> uh I mean, there has been enormous progress on on the plastic pollution problem in the sense that the public in Britain particularly and also around the world are both very aware of it now and concerned. Um, The media has run with it and managed to inform people relatively effectively. And the government is feeling pressure over this. Supermarkets as well, which is a very important sector in terms of plastic, because of course that's where a lot of our plastic packaging comes from. Um, But the government is feeling pressure. The government's made various announcements about it, has made plastic into uh, an issue that they claim they want to deal with. But uh, the government's been saying things like, oh, we want to phase out problem plastics by 2043. Um, And, say, Iceland, the supermarket, are going to do that by, I think, was it um, 2021? You know, like 23 years faster than the government was asking them to do it. So the government's target is a joke. It's saying we're going to do absolutely nothing and hopefully everybody else will have sorted the problem out before we get to our target date and it doesn't matter because we'll all be dead by then anyway. Um, it's, it's farcical. Uh, the idea that 2043 is an acceptable year to keep the current problem going to is absurd. Um, on the other hand, there are other things where there's slightly more hope. So uh, the government is considering a plastic tax on, on packaging. Uh, my guess is they'll make that pathetically inadequate, but who knows, I might be wrong. Um, and the concern of the public is having a much bigger impact on supermarkets and other retailers um, and manufacturers than it is on the government. So a lot of companies uh, are are actually taking much more impressive action, much faster action than the government. Yeah, that sort of leads me to what I wanted to ask you next, really, is that uh, people pressure often is is better in these things, especially when it comes to the case of supermarkets who might lose business if people don't shop there anymore, because all they do is, you know, uh, store things in too much plastic. But what I mean, we keep hearing that, you know, that we should be doing lots of recycling, which, you know, I do and I'm very conscious about and all these things that we should do. But a lot of these problems seem bigger than that. What can people actually be doing? Is is putting pressure on companies the best thing that, that we should be doing as just as members of the public? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's no need for us as individuals to become part of the problem. There's no reason for you to say, right you know bollocks to it i'm going to stop recycling i'm going to buy a four by four and whatever because the government and the institutions that are in control aren't doing their bit so why should i um you should you know struggle to be part of the solution but yes i would agree with you the most effective thing you can do if you're not a billionaire 
is to lobby is to lobby your supermarket is to lobby the companies you buy from is to lobby your mp is to lobby central government um in as strong a form as you're willing to commit to um so obviously that's what greenpeace do um we campaign to get companies to change their policies and governments to change their policies um and you can make so much more change that way so much more quickly than trying to persuade millions of consumers to switch from one product to another, uh, which is extremely difficult from our point of view, um, and extremely difficult from the consumer's point of view if they're not getting cooperation from the companies and the government. Uh, your consumer choices don't include every green technology and green alternative that we have to employ to stop climate change or stop plastic pollution. Some of those things aren't available to you, so your consumer choices can't influence that particular part of the problem until the government or the companies involved in, in that sector get their act together and start offering the environmentally friendly option. Um, so yeah, Greenpeace are very much upfront about this. Consumer choices are important, don't become part of the problem, but they're not enough. We can't solve the world by just making the right decision in the supermarket aisle. You have to write to your MP or better still go and see them or better still go and close down their office until they agree to do what you want them to do. Sure. I mean, one, of, one of the things I do want to ask, actually, is just because it, it was mentioned this week, was that, that the climate minister, Claire Perry, said it was not her place to tell people to eat a climate-friendly diet uh, and have less meat. Um, would I mean, would, would changing diets... Uh, I'm, I'm a lifelong veggie, so I, I feel a, a pariah on this. But uh, would, would people change their eating habits? Would that make a big impact? Is that something people should actively be doing? Yeah, I mean, with all due respect to the right honourable junior minister, that was a moronic thing to say after they'd just instituted (laughs) a sugar tax. So we will tell people not to eat sugar, but we won't tell people not to eat meat because, I mean, there is no reasoning that justifies that. It's ridiculous. Um, So, yes, people should eat less meat. Uh, I'm a vegetarian, but... Before I became a vegetarian, my favourite foods were rare steak and bacon sandwiches and all that kind of thing. So I do understand that it's not necessarily easy to become a vegetarian. But eating less meat is relatively easy. Just occasionally, you know, seeing if there's another option that doesn't contain meat that you might like as much as to swap in for one of your meat meals. See if you can expand on that a bit. Um, I mean... Even if you're going to be continuing to eat meat, but not all meat is the same. Beef is particularly bad for the environment. It's got extremely high emissions. It uses enormous amounts of land. Uh, so there are other types of meat which are lower. Well, pretty much all types of meat are lower emission than beef. So that's something that everyone needs to look at. But yeah, the idea that the government will say, oh, we're not even going to advise people to eat less meat. I mean, that, that really does undercut your hopes to solve things like climate change. So, like, you know, it's not that you're not going to ban it or you're not going to tax it to reduce demand. You're not even going to talk about it. And that, that really is disheartening. That's the kind of thing that would make me think, well, I'm never voting for Claire Berry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so aside, aside from uh, maybe people cutting down on uh, uh, some beef, um, what what is the best way for listeners to help with Greenpeace's current campaigns? Um, what are the current campaigns that they should be getting on the back of and what, how can people contribute? Uh, well, we uh, on our website, we have uh, our what you can do section, which is uh, worth having a look at and worth deciding which things you'll think you think you're going to be effective at. Um, because different campaigns uh, uh, you know, have different styles and are good at different things. So we have a lobbyist network, 
um, who write letters to their MPs and ministers um, and occasionally go and visit their MPs during local surgeries to put forward our concerns about various environmental problems that are happening and what the government should be doing about it. Um, obviously, that's extremely powerful. If you have a face-to-face -face meeting with your MP, that is real political power. Um, people are very cynical. They think, oh, nobody listens. They do listen because we live in a democracy and they need your vote. Even if they don't agree with you, even if they don't like you very much, they still want your vote. Um, so it's, it is important to, to have that kind of contact. And letters have an impact. People think they don't, but they do. If a MP gets 10 letters on the same issue, they start to think, okay, for every one of these letters, there's probably a hundred voters at least that care about it that didn't write a letter. So maybe I should start taking this seriously. Um, so that's one thing. Um, obviously, we also do uh, direct actions, uh, which I'm very keen on. And if you want to get involved in that side of Greenpeace, you can. Um, obviously, you have to be trained to make sure everything's extremely safe. Um, so we start with nonviolent direct action training and then maybe train you in the more technical aspects uh, before we would actually bring you on a direct action. But I think those are a very powerful form of campaigning. Um, and then we have local groups, and they would go out and talk to uh, people in the local shopping centre about uh, a particular company that's causing a problem or a particular issue. So often they'll go out and set up their store outside the supermarket or the shop that's causing the problem. Um, so what we do is a, is a little bit more confrontational uh, than some campaigners we're you know we're very much saying this is the bad guy go and tell them to stop it um yeah i, I uh recently like the the vw one was that uh, where there was set up outside vw's headquarters that you did oh yes yeah, no, no, that was that was fun we had uh we had some doctors um respiratory uh illness doctors who uh who were giving the uh, volkswagen workers checks on their lung capacity and various other things to see if the uh, diesel fumes had affected them. Um, we actually got a couple of uh, Volkswagen workers came over and allowed the doctors to test them, which uh, was quite surprising because um, I thought they would have been shunning us. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and that's an interesting issue, of course, with um, diesel cars, they're a climate problem, but the, the air pollution problem, the health impacts, I mean, I was saying earlier, we don't really know whether plastic pollution is causing human health impacts. Um, and there are a lot of issues where we're working on chemicals where we're just not really sure how dangerous they are. Diesel is really dangerous. It kills thousands and thousands of people just in London every year. It kills millions of people around the world every year. It's a far bigger killer than all the like, really big, scary diseases like malaria and AIDS and things like this. Diesel. <laughs> it's uh, shocking the death toll of diesel and the fact that people put up with it. Yeah, I I, uh, I know someone actually, a fellow comedian who was told by their doctor to stop smoking, and uh, she had to say that she'd never been a smoker, but she lives in central London, and uh, it's, <laughs> that's it. It's just uh, local pollution has given her smokers' lungs, which is lovely. I mean, here's an amazing little fact. Thought this uh, as an interesting statistic: if you're buying a car in in central London and you're choosing between you know, which model you're going to get, if there's two identical cars, except one's diesel and one's petrol, if you choose the petrol option, in that moment of choice, you've saved the NHS £8,000 by going for the petrol rather than diesel. Now, of course, Greenpeace don't support diesel. We would say, please, please get an electric car. If you go for the electric version, you've saved the NHS £16,000 with that decision. And yet we're happy for car companies to continue selling diesel. 
you know, what's the advantage? None. What's the disadvantage? Millions of deaths! <laughs> it's, it's really a bad thing. I am amazed the Health Secretary Matt Hancock hasn't got on that immediately and just uh, promoted electric cars. You'd think he would. Um, well, one uh, last question I, I just want to ask, which is something that I ask all my interviewees uh, on this podcast, um, just to kind of spread knowledge, really, um, is that apart from yourself and Greenpeace UK, who else would you recommend listeners follow or research or read up on for um, up-to-date info and, and ways and opinions on how to tackle climate change? Like, who, who do you look for? Who do you go to? Ooh, well, um, in terms of journalists, I'd say Monbiot's um, always worth reading. Um, I like Dave Roberts, um, who writes for Vox in the US uh, on climate change. I think he's very astute. Um, so if you want to find out about what's going on, what the climate politics are, um, what's holding us back and all that sort of thing, um, Dave Roberts is really good. Uh, uh, and he's he's quite good on Twitter as well. Does some great uh, Twitter threads. Um, in terms of organisations, oh, let's think. Um, I mean, Carbon Brief uh, is uh, a website in the UK uh, that do analysis and uh, data collection and data presentation. So they do really good visualisations of climate data and uh, for kind of for a layman, quite deep technical pieces, uh, but written for the layman, not for the uh, not for the expert, but if you, if you really want to understand an issue, then Carbon Brief are very, very good. Um, in terms of people who are campaigning, um, I mean, the um, divestment movement is interesting. Uh, divestment movement has got people to, uh, well, big funds, big institutional investors uh, to guarantee to remove uh, many, many billions uh, of, of dollars from fossil fuel investments, and that's starting to that's starting to have an impact on the markets. It, t- it takes a lot because there's so much money involved in these things, um, as I was saying earlier. Uh, but they're reaching that point now where they are actually significant as a player in in the uh, in the fossil fuel investment sphere. Uh, who else? Uh, Oh, well, I mean, that's a good start, I would say. Yeah, yeah um, I think you've, you've, you've given us loads more than some people do, so that's already, that's already great. Don't, don't worry uh, uh, too much, unless you've got anyone else. Obviously, particular. Friends of the Earth are great as well, um, so, you know, they're our main rivals in this sector. I don't want to <laughs> sound like I'm deliberately, but yeah, donate to Friends of the Earth, join Friends of the Earth, they're really cool. Not as cool as us, but cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Graham for that chat. Uh, you can, of course, find Greenpeace at greenpeace.org.uk or if you live elsewhere in the world, then you can find your local Greenpeace site near you as well. Um, they are, of course, on Twitter at Greenpeace UK or the global one is at Greenpeace and they're on Facebook and all of that too. And you can find out all about their current campaigns and how to help on there. All the other recommendations Graham suggested will be up on the website soonish. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to post an extra 15 minutes of chat I had with him about some of the direct non-violent action he's done both with Greenpeace and as a solo activist, as it's interesting stuff. Sometimes I find that stuff uh, sort of really quite inspiring as somebody who's not very good at action. It's incredible hearing the things that other people have done and often makes me want to go and do them. And there is, it's cold and I don't. Um, but anyway, that podcast is going to go out later in the week if you fancy a listen. Um, of course, as Graham mentioned, there are Friends of the Earth as well as other local environmental campaigns campaigns that may deal with issues nearer to you, such as fracking, extra runways, um, or, you know, Cthulhu. Um, it's Halloween. I thought I'd throw that one in, although actually I'm sure Cthulhu would be against pollution. If anything, I get the very sad feeling that he tried to rise up from out of the ocean only to inhale a ton of plastic and choke before the surface. God, that's sad, isn't it? So sad. 
Who would you like me to talk to? What subjects have I not covered on this show? What is that shadow that looks like a person behind you that you thought you saw in the corner of your eye? Oh, no, wait, it's gone. It's gone. That was, that was really weird. Um, anyway, please send all recommendations of interviewees to at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not chant your suggestion alongside some ancient incantations and summon an ancient demon to deliver them to me in replacement for a shard of your soul and your first only for it to go all wrong when you sneeze and knock the salt pentagram off kilter and then the demon eats your face instead and then I don't have a podcast guest because you're all selfish. It's probably just um, just easier to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for lending your Halloween pointy, mangled, furry or scaly ears to this show. And next week, I promise I'll have cleared out the cobwebs, fought off the giant spiders who insisted on making them, and everything will be back to normal happy service. Please don't forget to donate to this show, either to the Patreon or Kofi accounts, or maybe just send over your firstborn to, for sacrifice to the old ones, for they shall break through again. Sorry, uh, this cold is... It's really weird. Um, why not give the review a show on your favourite pod traps or recommend it to a fiend? Thank you to Acast for clawing this show into his audio underworld, alive amongst its other wailing denizens. And thank you to my brother, the last sceptic, for making all the sounds before Terror could take them. Special thank you this week as well to wonderfully funny comedian Beck Hill for her top climate change monster film idea. That was her idea, although Carbon in the Woods, my idea. Um, but she is brilliant. Do follow her on Twitter at Beck Hill Comedian or Be Chill Comedian, uh, as she often tells people. Oh, and thanks to my special guest, Creeping Laughing Girl, that keeps staring at me through the window despite us being one floor up. Thanks, creepy girl. This will be back next week when Philip Hammond will U-turn on his Brexit 50p announcement and say that due to funding issues, it'll now be one of those 1p coins that you squish on a roller and imprint it with the words Brexit means Brexit and it'll cost you £2 for the privilege, which will go towards some toilets. Farewell! This week's show was brought to you by Philip Hammond's Really Draining Blood Donation Service. Are you in need of a blood donor? Call us at Really Draining and we'll give you one to two drops of the blood you need and then piss off while the doctors are screaming at us that you need at least several pints. But hey, it's better than nothing or minus blood, am I right? Philip Hammond's Really Draining Blood Donation Service, where every type is O. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.